0: This is not a show. David Feldman is on vacation and I'm his stuntman as well as occasional body double. He needs a body double in case he meets someone who requires physical and emotional intimacy. He's not capable of that. That's where I come in. Anyway, this isn't a show. I'm David Feldman, stuntman and body double, and we're coming up on the end of the year. We need to do some maintenance to make sure all the systems are up and running for when David returns from his big vacation. And by big vacation, he's just in his studio apartment sleeping 18 hours a day. This is not a show, I'm just doing maintenance here. I'm flushing out the pipes, putting in a new ring seal, scrubbing the rust off the overflow tube, making sure the fill valve and the flush valve are communicating with one another and running a few tests on the float the flapper, and the shutoff valve. This is just the ordinary maintenance we like to do at the end of the year, so this is not a show. We're just doing what I call preventative care. The things with these podcasts is when they get to be 15 years old, if you don't keep an eye on things, they tend to break down. So this is not a show. We're just doing maintenance here. David will be back next week with a brand-new episode. Again, we're just doing some maintenance. Don't mind us they say 2024 is going to be a difficult year they say it's going to be scary elections do have consequences but I'm done with predictions I know what I know and it doesn't matter how next year plays out I know that there are people willing to fight for America I see it in Maine and Colorado where they've just thrown Donald Trump off the ballot I see it in Donald Trump's four criminal trials scheduled for 2024. I see it with Eugene Carroll and Letitia James's civil fraud trial in New York. There are too many Jamie Raskins, Katie Porters, Elizabeth Warrens, Merrick Garland's, Jack Smith's, and of course Bernie Sanders in this country for America to move backwards. I'm not scared. Donald Trump was impeached twice. He lost the popular vote twice. I don't know where we'll be a year from now. I'm positive, however, that these MAGA Republicans have no idea what's in store for them. MAGA Republicans are mental defectives. The ones who vote MAGA and the ones who serve in D.C. as MAGA, they are all mental and moral defectives. My friends say we're turning into Nazi Germany. Really? Really? Germany was the home to Einstein, Martin Luther, Karl Marx, Immanuel Kant, Thomas Mann, Beethoven, and Bach. Don't flatter yourself, America. We're too stupid to turn into Nazi Germany. Plus, we're never going to march in lockstep because we all hate each other. And it's those kind of inspirational thoughts that make you feel good about this country. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com and donate, or go to Patreon. I accept all major credit cards. Thank you for listening to me this year, and I look forward to 2024's roller coaster ride. This is episode 14220, and it's the last episode of the year. So, why is it numbered 14220? because we're wrapping up 14 years and this is the 220th episode of the year hence 14220 the next episode will be 1501 the season 15 and our first show i've put together another clip show that's how we're going to end the year with a clip show some highlights from 2023 it's an opportunity for me and you to look back and i'm going to ask you for a donation please go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. You'll see the Donate tab. On my website, I accept all major credit cards. Or you can go to Patreon. To those of you who have already donated, thank you. Seriously, to those of you who aren't going to donate, thank you as well. I understand this economy barely works for half the people who are listening right now. And even if the economy is working for you, You can't donate to everybody. There are relatives, friends, and much worthier causes than some angry guy sitting in his underwear screaming for attention so he feels alive. Honestly, I wouldn't donate to this show. I mean that. There are so many needy people on this planet. Why would I donate to this show? But if your priorities are out of whack please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. There's a Donate tab. I accept all major credit cards or donate via Patreon. Now, I call this a donation and my mind immediately goes towards real people in need. It would be immoral for this show to cut into the budget you set aside for charity. So allow me to reframe this. Don't think of this as a charity, and I'm not asking for a donation. Try to imagine this show as a toy store that's open almost every day, and we're giving the toys away for free. You don't need these toys. The world won't be better or worse with or without the toys I'm giving away. But if some of these toys were interesting, fun, kept you company, please consider paying for one of these toys. You don't have to. I'm not going to charge anyone for my toys. I'm sharing all my toys for free, and they will remain free. You can play with all my toys going back 14 years. In fact, it's more important that you play with my toys than it is you pay for them. It's more important that you play than it is you pay. But if you want to thank or encourage me, Go to Patreon or DavidFeldmanShow.com and pay. This isn't a charity. Let's call this transactional. Pay for some of these free toys. You don't need this show. I could stop doing it tomorrow, and the world won't be better or worse. This program is a light, airy pastry with maybe a little nutrition snuck into it. So instead of buying... A pastry, which is poison, it's sugar, butter, fat, worthless calories, send the money to me. In fact, instead of eating junk food, send the money to me. It's the Feldman diet. Every time you have the urge to buy junk food and then shove it down your throat, send me the money instead. It's, it's the Feldman diet. You know, it's interesting. Money, food, and sex are the three things Americans have difficulty discussing. Our biggest secrets revolve around money, food, and sex. Take me, for example. The only way I can get an erection is if someone pays me to watch them eat a quarter pounder. That's the truth. So, I'm going to ask you for money, but not a donation. I'm not a charity. I'm not a 501c3. This is uh, a business, This podcast is a toy store. I sell things you don't need, but they won't hurt you. Do this for me. Think of something you buy each month that you shouldn't. You know you shouldn't buy a Diet Coke or a non-union coffee, along with a scone over at Starbucks. You know you shouldn't be shopping on Amazon, buying something that's going to end up as landfill in a week. You know you shouldn't be buying tickets to see a big-budget movie that's identical to the same big-budget movie you saw last week. So send me that money instead. I'm not asking for the money you set aside for charity. I'm asking you to take a slice from your waste-of-money column and move it over to me instead. Or don't. But if you decide to forego that Cinnabon... Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. Hit the donate button. I accept all major credit cards or go to Patreon. All right. Former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy is heading out the door and he's taking with him an $11 million war chest that he's free to pretty much spend on whatever he wants. It may be legal. Then again, it may not be. McCarthy was a prolific fundraiser. That's why he became speaker. His leadership pack over the past decade raised $26 million from unsuspecting donors who were told their money would be distributed by McCarthy. He would distribute it, he said, to other Republican candidates so his party would either keep or win back the House of Representatives. That's how you become speaker. You convince wealthy donors that you're the eyes and ears of the Republican Party. So give me cash and I'll know who to give it to. I'll know how to spread it around so we can find the best and brightest Republicans to run for office. But like I said, over the past decade, Kevin McCarthy raised $26 million, but only dispersed a little under $15 million. That's why there's $11 million in Kevin McCarthy's war chest as he heads for the exit. And he might be able to spend that money any way he chooses. It might be perfectly legal. Then again, it may not be. There's new reporting in the Los Angeles Times over the weekend, which reveals that Kevin McCarthy dipped into that war chest and spent close to a million dollars on a lavish lifestyle of first class travel, first class hotels and restaurants According to the Los Angeles Times, Kevin McCarthy spent as much as $200,000 at one of California's most exclusive resorts, where he may have been accompanied a couple of times by a female life coach who took to Instagram showing pictures of herself lounging around the pool. If you ask the entire Republican caucus... They will tell you that Kevin McCarthy cannot be trusted. That's why he was forced to vacate the chair. Many in his caucus call him an inveterate liar. We know that Kevin McCarthy, during the past 10 years, raised $26 million from unsuspecting donors who thought he was going to spread it around helping Republican candidates get elected to Congress. But we also know $11 million was left unspent. He's heading for the doors with all of it in his pocket and no accountability. More on Kevin McCarthy's $11 million heist later on in this episode. But first, This is The Mop-Up. I'm David Feldman. Please like this episode so I remain in your feed. Subscribe to my newsletter and my channel. Don't forget to take me wherever you go by downloading this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a podcast. A Los Angeles Times investigation reveals that for more than a decade, Kevin McCarthy used his super PAC to travel around the country, flying first class, staying at the best hotels, eating at the finest restaurants, and charging his own super PAC in excess of $1 million for this extravagant lifestyle. To give you an idea how outlandish this is, it is double the combined total of the seven House members who held leadership positions during that 10-year period. In other words, if you took all the Democrats and Republicans in the House who served as Speaker, Majority Leader, Minority Leader, Whip, during the past decade, if you added up what they all charged, their individual super PACs for travel, hotel, and meals, Kevin McCarthy is twice... The combined total. Take a look at this is a graph from. uh, No, it isn't. Hang on. Here we go. Okay, now we can take a look at. This is uh, prepared by the Los Angeles Times. It's a breakdown. Look at this. It's incredible. In the past decade, Kevin McCarthy spent one million seventy-two thousand dollars on first-class hotels, travel, and meals. And he took it out of his leadership pack. They all have super PACs. That's why they're in leadership positions. Right behind Kevin McCarthy is Mr. Moneybags, the, the bag man for Wall Street, Chuck Schumer, currently the majority leader. In the past decade, while Kevin McCarthy spent 1072000 on Restaurants, hotels, and private jets. Chuck Schumer, $106,000. His predecessor, Harry Reid, spent $87,000. John Boehner, when he was Speaker, during his 10 years as Speaker or Minority Leader, $85,000. Mitch McConnell, $48,000. Nancy Pelosi, only spent $17,000. It's incredible. And Kevin McCarthy spent $1,072,000 of his Super PAC on travel. First class travel, private jets, first class hotels, restaurants, doing the people's business. The L.A., Times reports over the weekend that in just two years, McCarthy charged a quarter of a million dollars to his super PAC in order to stay at a California luxury resort that costs upwards of three thousand dollars a night. Between 2012 and June of this year, Kevin McCarthy's super PAC, his leadership pack, raised $26 million. That's public record. Go to Open Secrets. You can see this. He raised $26 million with $14.7 million going towards campaign contributions to other House candidates. Like I said at the top of the show, it's how you get elected speaker. If you can raise the money, you can buy the votes by spreading that money around. You donate it to the campaigns of your fellow lawmakers or try to get them uh, elected. You know, you find people who've never run before and you get them elected and you spend money on them. You've got them for life. So he spent he raised twenty six million dollars. Get out your calculators. He raised twenty six million dollars, but only spent fourteen point seven million dollars on what that money was supposed to go towards, other candidates. And that leaves him with about $12 million, $11 million sitting in a super PAC. Who gets it? Who gets it? Last year, the Federal Election Commission, by a vote of four to two, ruled that United States law does not prevent members of Congress from using their super PAC money, the money they have left over, to pay for their family's personal expenses. In other words, this is what the Los Angeles Times talked about. They said it would be pushing it, but theoretically, Kevin McCarthy could take the money, $11 million, $12 million that he has left in his war chest, he could take that money from a super PAC and buy a house with it. This has never been done before. Nobody ever bought a house with their super PAC. But you know what else hasn't been done before? This. Somebody spending $1,072,000 of campaign donations on private jets, first-class restaurants, and hotels. It's pretty incredible. Some say it's legal. Some say it's not. Somebody should open up an ethics investigation into this. Somebody should look into this. Lauren Boebert is now accused of dipping into her campaign war chest to pay for tickets to see her former boyfriend compete in a bicycle race. According to new reporting, Boebert used campaign cash, and I—I'm not being petty here. I'm trying to make a larger point, okay? And I'm being petty. She used campaign cash totaling three hundred and thirty-nine dollars and ninety-four cents to watch then-boyfriend and Demo- he was a Democrat. He is a Democrat. Quinn Gallagher. She paid. Used $339.94 from her campaign war chest to watch her boyfriend come in 774th out of 1,788 competitors in a Colorado bike race. Okay? And this is considered scandalous in her district $339.94. She's also being accused of dipping into her campaign war chest in order to spend $317 last July at her boyfriend's Colorado bar, which is famous for hosting Drag Queen Night. If you remember, Bobert and the guy Gallagher were recently thrown out of a performance of the musical Beetlejuice after the congresswoman was seen vaping, making noise and groping. Her boyfriend's nether regions while he groped her bosoms in front of her children, in front of children, not her children. Bosoms. Funny word, bosoms. Okay, so this is a scandal in her home district $339.94 to watch her boyfriend. in a bike race and then $317 to buy some drinks at his bar. Okay? Compare that to Kevin McCarthy. $1,072,000 on restaurants, private jets, and hotels. As Bob Dylan says, right? Still little they throw you in jail, steal a lot, and they make you king. That would be Lauren Boebert. Lauren Boebert. You're listening to Highlights from the David Feldman Show. Please go to davidfeldmanshow.com. I accept all major credit cards. Or go to Patreon. The House Ethics Committee has reopened its investigation into Matt Gates, the Florida congressman who led the charge to remove Kevin McCarthy, a speaker. Since being forced to vacate the chair, Kevin McCarthy has used every opportunity he could find to call for Matt Gates's ethics probe to be reopened. At one point, McCarthy even suggested that Gates belongs in prison. The ethics committee, one day before the vote to expel George Santos, sent out an official request to speak to what is reportedly a very important witness. The investigation into Gates was opened back in 2021, where it was suggested that Matt Gates might have violated federal sex trafficking laws, possibly involving underage women. The ethics investigation has been hanging over Matt Gates's head and has been inactive, Ever since back in February, when the Justice Department announced that it would not press charges against Matt Gates after looking into allegations that Gates might have violated the Mann Act. According to reports, the Department of Justice felt the witnesses willing to testify against Matt Gates were not credible. Now, between George Santos. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and, of course, Kevin McCarthy. A lot of us have lost sight of the fact that within the Republican caucus, Matt Gates is the most hated. There, there isn't much you can get Republicans to agree on other than hating Matt Gates. Now, I said on yesterday's show with McCarthy... Leaving before Christmas. George Santos gone. And Ohio Republican Congressman Bill Johnson set to resign sometime before March. The Republicans could be looking at a one vote majority in the House, maybe by February. And then Santos's seat is expected to be flipped, it's going to go blue. It's going to be taken by a Democrat, so we're only halfway through the 118th Congress. By the way, some of you corrected me, and I don't know what I said. Uh, I'm pretty sure yesterday I said we are currently uh, we currently have the 118th Congress. I think that's what I said, uh, and I think that's correct. The 118th Congress convened in January of this year and it will end in January of 2025. And I think I got that right. I think I called it the 118th Congress. I think I did. Maybe I didn't. What I think I got wrong is I referred to the previous Congress as the 116th Congress. It's the 117th Congress. So maybe I did I was off. Anyway, I stand corrected. I don't even know what I said on yesterday's show. But it is currently, I think, the 118th Congress. And uh, the Congress before that would be one minus 118. My math is a little weak. This morning, I think that would be 117. And then you double that, and you know how old America is. So I apologize for the confusion. Anyway, we're not even halfway through the 118th Congress. What do you think the odds are that Democrats end up with the majority sometime next year? I am hearing reports of infighting Within the Republican caucus that borders on the cataclysmic, more and more Republicans are going to be heading for the door after the holidays. Now, do you remember when Jim Jordan was running for Speaker? What was that, six weeks ago, two months ago? And all the death threats directed at Republican House members who wouldn't vote for him? Do you remember that? We forget. But there were there were members of the Republican caucus who were getting death threats because they wouldn't vote for Jim Jordan for speaker. If it starts to look like Trump is going to be the nominee, I'm hearing there are a handful of Republicans in the House who are going to say I'm out of here before spring for their own physical safety. A lot of Republicans say privately they don't feel safe. Their families are not safe, not only in Washington, D.C., but back home. And a lot of Republicans want out. Not good. Not good. So what happens? You get three or four Republicans who say, I can't take it anymore. I'm coming home then the Democrats have the majority. Does does Hakeem Jeffries become speaker? What happens? Kevin McCarthy yesterday said he was endorsing Donald Trump for president and would consider taking a cabinet position if Trump offered him one that McCarthy felt was appropriate. Maybe you'd like to be ambassador to Douchebagia, the country of Douchebagia. I think that's the only... Appointment that would be appropriate for Kevin McCarthy in a Trump administration. It's incredible. It's incredible. McCarthy is leaving. He doesn't have to endorse Donald Trump. He could leave quietly, go take a job on K Street. But craven ambition always gets the best of Kevin McCarthy. Last week, we reported that after McCarthy lost the speakership, he called Donald Trump to find out why the former president didn't lobby for him, didn't lobby for him the same way he did back in January when Trump helped to whip votes for McCarthy to win the speakership after 15 rounds. In their phone conversation, after Kevin McCarthy vacated the chair, he said to Trump why didn't you help me and Trump reportedly accused Kevin McCarthy of being disloyal telling McCarthy that telling McCarthy that he had 9 months as speaker to expunge Trump's two impeachments but he didn't do it that's why i didn't help you and McCarthy reportedly screamed at the top of his lungs go f yourself And that's not the first time Kevin McCarthy screamed at Donald Trump. McCarthy reportedly yelled at Trump on January 6th while he was cowering from the insurrectionists. McCarthy got on the phone, told Trump to call off the attack dogs, and Trump reportedly said, apparently these people care more about the election being stolen than you do. And yet, Kevin McCarthy, knowing who Trump is, what he's capable of doing to this country, he's still endorsing Trump for president. Still endorsing Trump for president. This is a Pledge of Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com. I accept all major credit cards. Or you can go to Patreon. Marjorie Taylor Greene loves violence. Her campaign ads feature the Georgia Congresswoman literally with rocket launchers firing on a hybrid car with the word liberal on it. Last month, she excoriated the head of the FBI for obsessing about January 6th, which she called a three-hour event. I played the clip. She referred to it as a three-hour event. Not a riot, a three-hour event an event like, you know, the series finale of Games of Thrones. Last month, when Congresswoman Daryl Issa joined seven other Republicans to vote against her motion to impeach the head of Homeland Security, she called Daryl Issa a pussy, said he needs to grow some. Her rhetoric and worldview are tinged with violence and that's to put it mildly. She adores Donald Trump and lobbied hard for him to be the one who replaced Kevin McCarthy as speaker of the house. When the Fulton County District Attorney indicted Donald Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene said they should leave him alone and and I wish I were making this up. Marjorie Taylor Greene told the Fulton County D.A., leave Donald Trump alone, go after rapists, unquote. This only months after a jury in New York ruled that Donald Trump was guilty of raping E. Jean Carroll. There are at least 30 credible sexual assault allegations against Donald Trump, But Marjorie Taylor Greene is out there every chance she gets to open for him at his rallies. Because during the Me Too movement, Marjorie Taylor Greene rejects the term believe women. And the Republican Party, that's a tough one. Believe women. They don't believe women. Marie Newman has been on this show, she has a transgender daughter. Her office is next door to Marjorie Taylor Greene's office. So to mock Congresswoman Newman's daughter, Marjorie Taylor Greene, posted a sign outside her office that Congressman Marie Newman, with a transgender daughter, has to see a couple of times a day. The sign reads, quote, there are two genders, male and female trust the science, unquote. Trust the science. This from someone who thinks the earth is 6,000 years old and won't get vaccinated. Two weeks ago, I reported that Marjorie Taylor Greene was going to step forward in December to report that she had been physically assaulted by a male member of the Republican caucus. I don't know if you remember but I told you this two weeks ago. And sure enough, today, she brought an official complaint to Speaker Mike Johnson about fellow Georgia Republican, Republican Congressman Richard McCormick. Now, according to the latest reporting, Green says she was physically assaulted by Republican Congressman from Georgia, Richard McCormick. The assault took place during a meeting of the Republican caucus last month. And this is very serious. McCormick and Green at the time had competing resolutions to censure Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American serving in Congress. Marjorie Taylor Greene's resolution to censure her was rejected, but Congressman McCormick's resolution to censure Rashida Tlaib, made it all the way through the House and got passed. It was his, his motion that resulted in Rashida Tlaib getting censured, not Marjorie Taylor Greene's. And Marjorie Taylor Greene was very upset. She wanted her censure motion to succeed, not Congressman McCormick's. Now, you might remember she got kicked out of the Freedom Caucus for turning on Lauren Boebert. Well, why did Marjorie Taylor Greene turn on Lauren Boebert? Well, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert introduced articles of impeachment for Joe Biden that Marjorie Taylor Greene insisted were identical to her articles of impeachment for Joe Biden that she had already introduced. And Marjorie Taylor Greene felt, why are you introducing your own articles of of impeachment? Why can't you get on board mine? So Marjorie, this is all true, by the way. This is why Marjorie Taylor Greene got kicked out of the Freedom Caucus, partly for supporting Kevin McCarthy as speaker, but mostly because of this. Marjorie cornered Lauren Boebert on the House floor walked up to her and said, and I quote, you know, you're a little bitch. Not making this up. And then she said to Lauren Boebert, you stole my articles of impeachment. It was my idea to impeach Joe Biden. And and you stole my articles of impeachment. You're a little bitch. And then it turned into a bit of a screaming match in the congressional ladies room. Not making this up. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene will not stop calling Lauren Boebert a whore. Whenever Lauren Boebert's name comes up in conversation in the halls of Congress, Marjorie Taylor Greene says, you mean that whore? Like I said, What's not wrong with these people? Stop asking me what's wrong with these people. What's not wrong with these people? Anyway, so after Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian American, only Palestinian American serving in Congress, after she was censured, there was a meeting of the Republican caucus and Marjorie Taylor Greene, was seething because, you know, she got what she wanted. Rashida Tlaib was censured, but it wasn't Marjorie's censure, right? It was Congressman McCormick's. And she was seething. And while waiting for the meeting of the Republican caucus to begin, Congressman McCormick found himself in an argument with another House Republican over something And then Congressman McCormick, the Georgia congressman who motioned to censure Rashida Tlaib, made it all the way through and passed. He had had enough of this argument, and he did a 180. He turned around to walk away from this argument. He does a 180, and he sees Marjorie Taylor Greene, and he smiles, and he thinks, oh, a kindred spirit. We both wanted to censure Rashida Tlaib. And he grabbed her by the shoulders, shook her, and said, at least we can have an honest discussion, right? In other words, we're both bigots from Georgia, we're both hateful Islamophobes who introduced resolutions to censure Rashida Tlaib. I can have an honest discussion with you. And he shook her like that. But Marjorie was still harboring a grudge because her resolution to censure Rashida Tlaib failed and McCormick's succeeded. So she said something along the lines of, get your hands off of me. McCormick immediately apologized and thought that was the end of it. But she immediately contacted the new speaker to say she was physically assaulted by her fellow Islamophobic bigot from Georgia. And now Mike Johnson has to decide whether to initiate an ethics investigation. By the way, I'm not sure if Rashida Talib is Muslim or Christian, uh, but there's still... <laughs> They're still Islamophobes. Uh, Okay. So, about Marjorie Taylor Greene being physically assaulted. Do I subscribe to believe all women? I do. I believe all women. Should a man grab a woman by the shoulders and shake her without permission, even if he thinks he's being friendly? No. Nope. Does Marjorie Taylor Greene have the right to feel she had been violated by her fellow racist, Islamophobic bigot when he grabbed her without permission? Yes. I know an attack on one woman is an attack against all women. But we're talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene. So there's something else that also has to be said. Unfortunately, it can't be said because it would be taken out of context. But it's what every single one of my listeners, especially the women, are thinking. So... I'm now going to say what needs to be said about Marjorie Taylor Greene, but in a way that only my longtime listeners will understand. You know, you'll know, you understand what I'm saying if you've been a longtime listener, and this way my words will not be taken out of context, okay? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Donald Trump, blah blah blah, blah blah, blah blah, Egene Car, blah, blah 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 blah. On March eighteenth, twenty twenty-one, Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of hundred and seventy-two Republicans in the House who voted against reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act. Blah blah blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Blah. And so did Mike Johnson. She refused to authorize the boyfriend loophole when it comes to abusive boyfriends buying a gun. So blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Blah you. Blah you and you're blahing blah, blah. Blah. No, seriously, Marjorie Taylor Greene, go blah yourself. This way it won't be taken out of context. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right buckle in real time. Thank you for listening. This is a pledge episode. Please support this show by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. Tuesday night, Speaker Mike Johnson delivered the keynote address at the National Association of Christian Lawmakers in Washington, D.C. The event was held at the Bible Museum. Anyway, the National Association of Christian Lawmakers was founded by Jason Rapert. Uh, that's his uh, name right there, Jason Rapert. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing it properly, or maybe the T is silent. Uh, We talked about Jason Rapert, who last month after Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders appointed him to her state's library board. He took credit for Huckabee signing into law earlier this year some of America's cruelest anti-trans legislation. He, he lost re-election and he was like a state senator, I think, in Arkansas. And so to, to thank him uh, for for basically writing one of America's cruelest anti-trans laws that got passed in Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders appointed him to her state's library board. I guess he would be the book banner in chief. And uh, Anyway, uh, that's what they do in Arkansas, one of the poorest states in America. I think it's the fifth poorest state in in America. I think it's the like has the third worst public school system in America, and they're helping. That's how Sarah Huckabee Sanders improves test scores by uh, passing one of the cruelest anti-trans laws in America. Good on you. Anyway, Rapert believes homosexuality is the result of grooming by older gay men. Doesn't believe you're born a homosexual. Someone isn't born gay, they're converted by a groomer. Hence, gay conversion therapy. If someone converted you, To be gay, we can convert you back to being in the closet. Because that's all gay conversion therapy is. That's all it is. If you take the battery clamps off my jewels, I promise I'll go back into the closet. Human rights organizations call gay conversion therapy torture. So it should come as no surprise to you that one of the lawyers... For Exodus International, one of the leading purveyors of gay conversion therapy was Mike Johnson. He was the lawyer for Exodus International until they went out of business in 2013 after the president of Exodus International said, I'm sorry, it doesn't work. It's cruel and it doesn't work. I know it doesn't work because I'm still attracted to men. Mike Johnson, lawyer for Exodus International. Anyway, according to Right Wing Watch, which I think may have been founded by Norman Lear, not sure. I think Right Wing Watch was founded by Norman Lear. Uh, Let me know in the comments section. But according to Right Wing Watch, Rapert, like Speaker Mike Johnson... Subscribes to the teachings of Dutch Sheets. Yes, that's his name, Dutch Sheets. I think Dutch Sheets was also one of the ghosts in Field of Dreams. It sounds like one of one of the Black Sox, Dutch Sheets. Anyway, but Dutch Sheets is uh, a Dominionist and I hope I'm not pronouncing this properly because they don't deserve it, but he's a dominionist from the New apost- Apostolic. There we go. He's a dominionist from the New Apostolic Reformation. The New Apostolic Reformation. Dutch Sheets. So what is the New Apostolic Reformation? Well, if you had gone to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., and heard the speaker, speak in tongues, we have our first speaker who speaks in tongues. Uh, You would know what the new apostolic reformation is. Dutch Sheets, who Mike Johnson is a big supporter of, Dutch Sheets is said to have been the religious leader for many of the January Sixers who stormed the Capitol carrying his appeal to heaven flag. You can see it right here. This is the same flag that stands outside the office door of Speaker Mike Johnson right now. Appeal to heaven. Dominionists like Dutch Sheets and Mike Johnson, our speaker, they believe in the doctrine of conquering the seven mountains. What are the seven mountains? It's not Chris Christie wearing a tank top Sitting on a bar stool, that's the different seven mountains. The Seven Mountains doctrine calls on good Christians to take to carry their biblical worldview and conquer the second mountain the seven mountains of American society. They must take it upon themselves to infiltrate and then rule. The seven mountains, the seven spheres of American society. And those seven mountains would be family, religion, education, Moms for Liberty, media, entertainment, business, and politics. This is theocratic fascism. Go in my way or the highway, because there only is one way. Mike Johnson's speech before the National Association of Christian Lawmakers last night at the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., where they have free dinosaur rides, his speech was recorded and then posted to their Facebook page, but then it was quickly taken down, kind of the way Mike Johnson's wife took her website down. But Rolling Stone magazine luckily saw the speech, and they wrote about Mike Johnson's speech at the Bible Museum last night. And the Speaker of the House, the Man who is second in line to the president told the group that he's been doing a lot of talking lately with God. Mm-hmm. And that's never good. It's never good when the Speaker of the House says he's been talking to God. You know, it's one thing to pray to God, but if God is uh, talking to you back, you need to check yourself in. So, what, what did God tell? What did God tell? What did God say to you, Speaker Johnson? Did he tell you that homosexuality leads to bestiality? Or did you and your wife come up with that one all by yourself? Because this is what the speaker of the House of Representatives here in the United States and his wife not only believe, but have said out loud, homosexuality leads to bestiality. Now, I, I have a problem with this because it implies that bestiality is far, far, far worse that homosexuality. If homosexuality leads to bestiality, what you're saying is, okay, bestiality is really bad, so if you engage in homosexual activity, next thing you know, it could lead to something even worse. Worse. Bestiality. If he's saying homosexuality, what he is saying, he's saying homosexuality leads to bestiality. He's saying homosexuality is weed, It's the gateway drug to the heroin that is bestiality. So one would think Mike Johnson right now would be calling for stricter laws against bestiality. Bestiality is the the problem. It's worse than homosexuality. Seems to me... Mike Johnson should be tackling the Schedule One sex acts like bestiality, but by, by instead of worrying about the less addictive, more socially acceptable Schedule Two sex acts like homosexuality, because bestiality is heroin. It's a Schedule One sex act. Trust me, it's hard to get off that shit. Don't, don't try it. And, by the way, let's not forget that Mike Johnson represents the swamplands of Louisiana. We know who his constituents are. If homosexuality leads to bestiality... Does that mean anyone who's had relations with the family dog is gay if that's how you get to bestiality by starting off as a homosexual, that means anybody who slept with a family dog had gay relations. so is mike johnson do you is he going to go there I'm pretty certain most of the backwater hicks who voted for Mike Johnson down in Louisiana, have done things with their dog on a Saturday night they're not too proud of. And now you're going to accuse them of also being gay? I'm not sure the backwater hicks who voted for Mike Johnson want to be told they're gay. Anyway, I really want to get back to hating myself. It's the holiday season. I really just want to focus on self-loathing. I don't want to think about Mike Johnson. Um, Anyway, according to Rolling Stone magazine, Johnson gave this speech at the Bible Museum last night, and he said the media wasn't in the room, so he could speak freely without reporters taking his words out of context. He's got a big problem with the media taking his words out of context. The only problem with that, Mike Johnson, is nobody took your words out of context. You said homosexuality leads to bestiality. Nobody took your words out of context. You took those words off the Internet. Your wife took it off the Internet You took it completely out of context off the Internet. But that is what you said. That's what you said. You've written columns criticizing the Supreme Court's ruling in Lawrence versus the state of Texas, which legalized homosexuality. He uh, he wrote that the decision was wrong. He has called for the criminalization of homosexuality. Nobody is taking your words out of context. We're reading your words. For example, this was an article he wrote after the Supreme Court ruled six to three in Lawrence versus Texas that strikes down Texas's homosexual sodomy law. OK, it made homosexual, the act of homosexuality legal. And Mike Johnson says homosexuality should be criminalized. These are your words, okay? Prescriptions against sodomy have deep roots in religion, politics, and laws. States have always maintained the right to discourage the evils of sexual conduct outside marriage, and the state is right to discriminate between heterosexual and homosexual conduct, since the latter cannot occur within the confines of marriage. More than A dozen pro-family and legal advocacy groups, including my own, filed amicus briefs to assist the court in this case. Most of the briefs share two common essential themes. States have many legitimate grounds to proscribe same-sex, deviant sexual intercourse, including concerns for public health, safety, morals, and the promotion of healthy marriage. OK, this is what you have in writing. OK, there is clearly no right to sodomy in the Constitution and the right of privacy of the home has never placed all activity within the home outside the bounds of the criminal law. All right. Uh, I could go on and on. Nobody took your hateful, bigoted words out of context. You said Homosexuality should be criminalized. When it was legalized, you wrote columns uh, uh, as a lawyer for the Alliance Defense Fund, which the Southern Poverty Law Center calls a, a hate group. You put into writing that homosexuality should be criminalized. Nobody's taking your words out of context. This is a pledge episode. Please support this program by going to DavidFeldmanShow.com. I accept all major credit cards. A three judge panel on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a lower court ruling that said Mark Meadows had to be tried in a Fulton County courthouse and not a federal courtroom because his alleged crimes were in no way related to his job as White House Chief of Staff. Okay? I bring all this up because it gives you insight into how the Supreme Court will probably rule on presidential immunity. I'm going to guess that when the Supreme Court gets around to ruling on whether or not there's such a thing as presidential immunity, they're going to decide along similar lines, the same way these appeals courts have ruled uh, on severing th- these uh, White House officials. Uh, uh, from the RICO trial and moving them into a federal courthouse. Uh, The very reason Meadows and Trump and Jeffrey Clark will not be able to sever their Georgia RICO trials and move them into a federal courtroom is the very same reason Donald Trump cannot claim he is immune from prosecution, because... I hope the Supreme, I expect the Supreme Court to rule this way, that the crimes Donald Trump is charged with were committed while he was president, but not because he was president. They were committed in spite of the fact that he was president. Now, there might be an argument for immunity if Donald Trump committed a crime while performing the role of of president. But overturning an election is not the job of a president. So there's no presidential immunity if such a thing actually exists. Here's an example, I think, of uh, what presidential immunity might look like. I don't know if you remember, but Qasem Soleimani, he was a beloved Iranian military leader. Trump ordered him assassinated in early 2020 and they killed him. He was in Iraq at the time. Now, talking about presidential immunity. Let's suppose that while trying to kill Soleimani in Iraq, Trump also accidentally or intentionally killed uh, an American contractor for Eric working for Eric Prince. I'm going to guess in that case Trump would have some type of presidential immunity. Something along the lines of qualified immunity, uh, like, you know, you can't arrest, you should be able to, but you can't arrest Dick Cheney and George Bush for the illegal invasion of Iraq. Now, it's a crime against humanity, but it's also part of the job description. That's what they're paid to do. To, to launch illegal invasions of other countries. It's part of the job description of being president. So I'm going to guess that's where presidential immunity can be applied. You know, starting illegal wars, killing one million innocent people, and nearly bankrupting America, that's part of the job. You have presidential immunity. Collateral damage, you're killing Suleimani, you accidentally kill an American contractor, it's part of a job. But there's nothing in the job description for President of the United States where it says you are supposed to steal an election, at least not your own. Maybe in Iran, you can steal an election or El Salvador, but not one here in the United States. Overseas, steal all the elections you want, just not here. Calling local election officials, intimidating local election officials, it's not part of the job. So you you're not you don't get immunity. Ulysses S. Grant, right? We've all heard about his getting arrested for speeding while he was president, because riding too fast on your horse is not part of your job. A blanket presidential immunity would suggest that a president, while he's in the Oval Office, could murder his mistress and get away with it, because presidents are immune. From prosecution. Well, murdering your mistress, you know, telling Peter Lawford to give Marilyn Monroe an overdose of phenobarbital is not the job description of the Attorney General of the United States or the President. You're, you're not immune from that. That is why this notion of presidential immunity is an ersatz legal argument to just postpone Trump's trial until after the election. And by the way, I've been doing this show. This is, we're wrapping up our 14th year. We start year 15 on January 1st. And I finally, after 14 years, I finally use the word ersatz. Hang on. That wasn't the sound I was looking for. Hang on. I got to use the word uh all right, I guess I should be more prepared. That's uh, the sound I make uh, when I use a fancy word. Well, fa- is anybody still here? Uh, Fawny Willis, unlike the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Jim Jordan, and the wife of Clarence Thomas, Jenny Thomas, uh, she went to law school and passed the bar unlike Jim Jordan and Ginny Thomas, who went to law school but couldn't pass the bar. Uh, Anyway, Faunee Willis passed the bar. Uh, Jim Jordan, House Judiciary Chairman, uh, and uh, Ginny Thomas didn't pass the bar. That doesn't stop them from questioning Faunee Willis's every move as she marches forward towards prosecuting Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. If you're not following that trial down in Georgia, the thing to understand is Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, and Donald Trump. Those are the three. That's why there's a RICO trial, to flip There are 19 people who are indicted. The idea is to flip 16, get them to turn state's evidence so she can lock up Rudy Giuliani, Donald Trump, And Mark Meadows. And it looks like she's serious about uh, locking them up. There are rumblings that Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows have tried to make some kind of plea deal with her. She's not interested. Uh, Meadows has already made a deal with Jack Smith's office in the Washington, D.C. interference case. And this is so huge. I mean this is you, we have no idea how big this is going to be this is going to make Donald Trump's DC election interference trial which is supposed to start in March it's going to it is going to be an absolute nightmare for Donald Trump Mark Meadows was Donald Trump's chief of staff he was Donald Trump's eyes and ears in the oval office whatever Donald Trump did Mark Meadows did it with him, and now he has flipped and turned state's evidence. I don't know how things turn out. I just know it's going to get uglier and uglier for Donald Trump. That civil fraud trial that wraps up on January 15th, where Donald Trump was exposed as being uh, guilty of fraud and not you know, lying about the value of Mar-a-Lago, and how humiliating that was, this is going to be exponentially worse. Maybe not politically. His voters, who knows what they think, if they even think. But in our criminal justice system, this is going to get very ugly. They have, with Mark Meadows, Donald Trump dead to rights. So Trump is trying desperately to do two things win Iowa, win New Hampshire, win the Republican nomination. That, if he doesn't get the nomination, I, I mean, he'll, you know, there'll be the appeals and stuff, but if he doesn't get the Republican nomination, he is in so much trouble. They have Donald Trump dead to rights. That's why his attorneys are desperately trying to get that federal trial in Washington, D.C., postponed until after the presidential election so trump can move into the oval office and dismantle the entire justice department and that's why they filed the cockamamie presidential immunity motion delay 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 well there's one little problem for trump when it comes to georgia funny willis from what i've been reading in the guardian she is not interested in making a deal with Donald Trump. No negotiating. It doesn't matter if Donald Trump becomes president. He can't pardon himself in a state trial. He can't fire Fani Willis. And it looks like she's not willing to take a guilty plea from Donald Trump in exchange for a letter of apology and some community service. The Guardian is reporting that she is all in on putting Trump behind bars. So, some things to look forward to during this winter. And finally, Rudy Giuliani filed for bankruptcy this week, saying he's $500 million in debt. I owe $500 million. That's what he claims. The man is such he even lies. This is how big a liar he is. He even lies about his own bankruptcy. I mean, there've been some judgments against him. He's got to pay the election workers more than $100 million, and he owes his lawyers a couple of million, his accountants a couple of million, some ex-wives, some money, but half a billion dollars in debt? Well, Biden was up against the Republicans and liars, bad people, bad people. Like the senator from one of the poorest states in America, Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia. And he was saying throughout this that all this spending on the social safety net was creating the inflation. Apparently Joe Manchin knows better than Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, you would think. No, Joe Manchin is a liar. And I'm glad to see him go. He was blaming inflation on the social safety net, with no proof and no evidence. Now, why would he say something like this? Why wouldn't Joe Manchin, whose constituents from West Virginia are worse off today than when he first became their senator? Why would he why would he fight the social safety net? Makes no sense. Whatever happened to bringing home the bacon, for your constituents, right? I just got finished reading This Will Not Pass by Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. It just came out. It's a great book. It's called This Will Not Pass. It's a blow-by-blow of Biden's first two years in office. I recommend reading it because there's been so much chaos during the Trump administration and it's bled over to the Biden administration. It's hard to keep track of everything. There, it, It's hard to keep track of the chaos that Donald Trump created as president, and it's also hard to keep track of all of Joe Biden's accomplishments. This is a proactive president. He doesn't sound proactive. He doesn't behave proactive. But when you look at... The resume from the past three years, we are talking Lyndon Johnson. We are. Uh, But it's hard to keep track of what Joe Biden has accomplished. And because it's hard to keep track of, I believe that's why Joe Biden's approval ratings are now the lowest, the lowest since he took office. In his first two years, Biden built, as I said, the largest social safety net in American history. He just did in terms of spending, in terms of handing money over to the American people so they didn't fall through the cracks. Unfortunately, it was temporary. The Republicans fought him every step of the way, and so did Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is a bad guy, and he kept fighting the child tax credit, and it, it lapsed, uh, which doubled childhood poverty overnight. The first year in office, Joe Biden increased the child tax credit, and child poverty in America, I think it was the lowest since the war on poverty first started. He just, like, eliminated half of child poverty. Again, I don't want to get into the weeds and talk about how it's not enough. Obviously, it's not enough. But, uh, so, he eliminated child poverty. Not completely. Now, why would Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia where I don't know if the kids still have the bloated bellies that Bobby Kennedy saw when he visited West Virginia, but you have severe poverty in West Virginia. Why would Joe Manchin be against the child tax credit? Well, according to This Will Not Pass, this book that I just read, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, fought Biden- on all the social safety net payments. You didn't want the child tax credit. And while all this was going on, you're going, why? Why? Well, are you seated? Sit down. According to This Will Not Pass, Joe Manchin fought the social safety net, the child tax credit. He said, I know my constituents you give them money and they spend it on drugs, unquote. Throughout the book, Joe Manchin is quoted several times as saying, get rid of the child tax credit. I know the people of West Virginia, you give them money and they spend it on drugs. And when I read that, I went, oh, okay. Now okay, now at least I understand what he what's going on in this evil mind of his. He sleeps at night by thinking, oh, you can't trust poor people with money. They'll spend it on drugs. Not the drugs his daughter, the drug executive, uh, sells. And she should we've gone over. It joe manchin's daughter she should be tried for price gouging on the epipen i've did a whole show on joe manchin's daughter just go to my website google joe manchin's daughter it's unbelievable what this family have they've cashed in on joe manchin's name the hypocrisy and the greed and the price gouging uh unbelievable but at least I got an insight into how Joe Manchin sleeps at night. He has so much contempt like Donald Trump does for his voters. It's better to keep them poor because any money you give them will just be spent on drugs. Isn't that incredible? That's his argument for making sure working moms have to choose between food and rent. Nah, they're just going to spend it on drugs. They're not going to spend it on school supplies, shoes, food, hospital co-pays. No, they're they're all going to spend it on drugs, and that's of course the cause of the opium addiction, the opiate addiction in West Virginia, the social safety net. If you ask him, how do we combat drug addiction? don't give any money to poor people they have no money they can't buy drugs but you better hire more cops because they'll probably end up breaking into my home to pay for their drugs I was very grateful when I read this because I said okay he sees poor people as animals so okay now I understand you give these animals money they spend it on drugs It's evil. And somehow, this POS thinks he's the one who should launch a third-party bid for president. The no-labels candidate. No labels. Josh Gottheimer's party. Vote for me, Joe Manchin. I'm the guy who makes you poor. I'm saving your life by keeping you poor. William Rehnquist once stated... Sandra Day O'Connor who is lying in state as we speak yeah Chief Justice Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor attended Stanford Law at the same exact time back in the 1950s apparently they shared a lot more than just notes they became lovers Rehnquist more so than Sandra Day. Rehnquist fell madly in love with Sandra Day O'Connor while they were dating at Stanford Law. And he proposed marriage. This is true. And Sandra Day O'Connor rejected William Rehnquist. Instead, she went on to marry another Stanford Law graduate named John O'Connor. 25 years later, Ronald Reagan nominated Sandra Day O'Connor to sit on the bench. By that time, William Hubbs Rehnquist was already an associate justice on that very same court. He was soon to be appointed chief justice. At the time, he was just an associate justice. To his credit, Hubbs That's what Bill Rehnquist's friends called him, Hubs. I don't know if that's true, but his middle name was Hubs. And I like to think that's what the people close to Rehnquist called him, Hubs. The same way people I'm close to call me Beauregard, because that's my middle name, Beauregard. As per my grandfather's request, I was named David Beauregard Feldman. Nobody in our family was ever named Beauregard, but my grandfather loved the name Beauregard because he always wanted to own slaves. He was a bad guy, my grandfather. Anyway, Hubs, that would be Billy Rehnquist, to his credit, could have called Ronald Reagan and said, don't appoint Sandra Day O'Connor. She broke my heart and it will be awkward having her strutting around the Supreme court in those tight fitting robes of hers. I won't be able to concentrate. And more importantly, it's not just me. Her reasoning is not sound. She's illogical. For example, he, he could have said to Ronald Reagan, don't appoint her. Uh, She doesn't have a great legal mind. I laid out a convincing case for why she should marry me, and she rejected it. I said, defend your ruling. Why are you rejecting my line of reasoning? And she said she didn't possess feelings for me. Feelings. Point by point, I eviscerated the thrust of her argument. I established her response of not wanting to marry me, was wide off the mark. And a lot of my friends concurred that I substantiated without any shadow of a doubt that she did, in fact, have feelings for me, but she still refused to concede my argument despite all evidence to the contrary. So I honestly think Sandra Day O'Connor lacks the judicial temperament to sit on the highest court of the land. That's what Hubbs was thinking of telling Ronald Reagan. But to his credit, he bit his lip and didn't say that. He decided what's past is past, and nobody told anyone that William Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor were lovers and that she broke his heart. And the two of them served on the court. And this was kept secret during William Rehnquist's entire tenure on the court for fear that Walter Matthau and Glenda Jackson would try to do a sitcom based on their lives. The love between Sandra Day and Hubs, we dare not say its name, That love was never revealed until Hubbs passed away. Nobody knew about it. The same way nobody ever found out about Samuel Alito and former Attorney General Bill Barr and their J. Edgar Hoover Clyde Tolson thing they've got going on. The point I'm making is, and this is a very important point, the point I'm um, stop googling Bill Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor. Everybody's googling to find out. They think I'm making it up. The point I'm making is that had Sandra Day O'Connor married Hubbs, Billy Rehnquist, she never would have been asked to sit on the Supreme Court. This is true. This is absolutely true. the u s code, Title V, Chapter 31, has very specific rules regarding federal officials working with loved ones. It's generally frowned upon. I'm pretty certain it was against the law for President Trump to hire Ivanka and Jared. But the great thing about breaking every single law in the United States Criminal Code, anything short of mass murder, is perceived as a misdemeanor. This is a pledge Please support this program by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. I accept all major credit cards. Rudy Giuliani promised reporters that he would clear his name when he testified this week. He said, I'm going to clear my name in the defamation suit filed against me by those two Fulton County, Georgia election workers. But lawyers for Rudy told the judge that the plaintiffs had suffered enough and Rudy's testimony would only cause them more pain. That and Rudy would perjure himself. Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, won their defamation suit. They've already won it after Rudy defaulted over the summer by failing to turn over any evidence during the discovery phase of that trial. The judge ruled that Rudy Giuliani did, in fact, owe them damages, that he defamed the mother and daughter when he went on national television, when he went before the Georgia state legislature and repeatedly claimed that Moss and Friedman stole the 2020 election from Donald Trump down in Georgia by stuffing ballots for Joe Biden. On the first day of this week's trial, Rudy showed up 20 minutes late and then, later in the day, defamed the plaintiffs and their lawyers. Rudy's own attorney had to apologize for his client's conduct, telling the judge he can't control Rudy's behavior. And then Rudy's lawyer said, quote, Your Honor, this has taken a bit of a toll on my client. He's almost 80 years old. There are health concerns for Mr. Giuliani. And as my father would say, F During his closing statement, Rudy's attorney, Joseph Sibley, admitted that Rudy Giuliani had defamed the two women and had caused damage. But he asked the jury to keep in mind that Rudy Giuliani once did great things by prosecuting the mob and leading New York City right after the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center where Rudy was told not to put the command and control center, but he did it anyway. They said to Rudy, we're going to set up a command and control center for a terrorist attack on uh, Manhattan. And Rudy said, well, let's put it in the World Trade Center. And he was told, no, you don't want to put it in the World Trade Center because that's pretty much the first place they're going to attack. Rudy did it anyway, and that's why there was so much confusion uh, 9-11. That's why the police and the firefighters and the first responders couldn't talk to one another because Rudy knew better and he put the command and control center uh, in the World Trade Center, which had already been attacked by terrorists. <sighs> Please forgive my client. He's done great things. No, he hasn't. No, he hasn't. And he's a racist. He's a racist. Uh, the attorney said, my, my, my client has been very apologetic, but he hasn't been. The lawyer was lying. As recently as Tuesday, Rudy continued to insist that the plaintiffs stuff ballots for Joe Biden, despite already being found guilty, despite the FBI and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation looking into his claims and independently, independently calling them false. While Rudy's lawyer was busy asking the judge and the jury for sympathy and admitting that his client defamed the two women and was remorseful, Rudy went outside the courtroom and accused the plaintiff's attorneys of being tied to the Biden Biden crime family. Now, clearly, there is something wrong with Rudy Giuliani. But as my father would say, F him. If he's got health issues, if he's got mental illness, let the warden help him. They have doctors in prison. Rudy's locked up enough people to know that there are doctors in, in prison. F him. And thanks to Rudy's lies, these two women received hundreds of racially tinged death threats. People showed up at their homes threatening to arrest them or worse. They both went into hiding, had to stop working. Lawyers for the two women, in their closing argument, told the jury that Rudy admitted to the judge over the summer that he told lies about the women. And he told the judge he was guilty. And yet, even after he told the judge he was guilty last summer, he continued to repeat the lies about Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman at least 20 times. An appeals court upheld Judge Arthur Engeron's gag order, preventing Donald Trump from attacking any of the court employees in his ongoing civil fraud trial in New York, where State Attorney General Letitia James is asking the former president to pay at least $250 million in damages for defrauding lenders, insurers, and the government. That trial is expected to wrap up in the middle of January, just in time for Donald Trump's Eugene Carroll trial, which starts on January 15th. That's over and above the four criminal trials he has next year. Donald Trump promised to take the stand on Monday, but like Rudy and his civil lawsuit backed out at the last minute. Again, Trump, like Rudy, has already been found guilty. Trump has been found guilty of fraud. And the trial, like Rudy's defamation suit, has been held only in order to determine just how much Trump and his two sons should be punished. Judge Arthur Engeron has yet to come up with the dollar amount on the fine. Initially, New York State Attorney General Letitia James asked for $250 million, but some are saying the fine could be in the billions. And Judge Engeron has already ordered the Trump Organization to turn its two big properties in Manhattan— That would be Trump Tower and 40 Wall Street to turn them over to liquidators so they can be sold off. Judge Engeron has ordered Trump's business to, as they say, turn off the lights. Unfortunately, it's all subject to appeal. The New York Times reports that Trump might do better in appeals court than we all thought. The New York Times did some interviews with experts in this field, and they say Judge Engeron might not have the authority to shut Trump's businesses down. According to the New York Times, some experts maintain that with the right attorneys, I don't think he's got them right now, but with the right attorneys, Trump could be able to salvage the properties by agreeing to dissolve all the shell companies that currently own the two properties that have been ordered liquidated. He could uh, dissolve those shell companies And at the same time, create new shell companies that can legally take on ownership of all of Trump's real estate. Ah, to be rich and white. So, while people like me have been getting tumescent over the thought of Trump and his children never being able to do business again in New York, losing their signature properties, the Times... I got to brace you, prepare you for this. The New York Times said yesterday it is conceivable that an appeals court will reverse Judge Arthur Engeron's ruling and create what the Times calls a minor irritation for Trump, where he has to fill out new paperwork. I know, I know. Well, while I'm piling on bad news, but I, I do have some hopeful news at the at the end. Uh, So let me just pile on a little bad news here. Many are saying Trump will have the nomination locked up by March. And, you know, I've been talking about Nikki Haley. It's just not happening. Things can change very quickly. This is like right around now. Things could change. It doesn't look (laughs) like it's changing. And I've... As you know, if, I'm, uh, if I say something is going to happen, it doesn't happen. If I say something's not going to happen, it happens. If I root against somebody, they become very successful. So I'm going to try a new tact this morning. I have accepted that Donald Trump is going to get the nomination and that his real estate holdings will not be wiped out. I'm accepting this. I'm predicting it. And this is good news because you know what my predictions, how my predictions always turn out. I should charge for these services. If you want to be successful, pay me to hate you or make a prediction about you. So I am predicting, I've accepted that uh, Trump is going to be the nominee and I'm being philosophical. Maybe it's for the best. Maybe by the time the general election rolls around, we'll say, you know what? Turns out Trump was easier to beat than Nikki Haley. That's my prediction. Uh, Things are getting dark. This this is my motivational speech now to keep your chin up. First, I did you all the favor by predicting that Trump was going to get the nomination and that he's going to get to keep his properties. You're welcome. Okay, now I'm going to give you a little inspiration here. The days are getting shorter, unless you're in New Zealand or Australia, which I'm told are actual places, but apparently they're upside down. I, I think they all stand on their head in Australia, because right now, summer is about to, 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 to start in, in Australia and New Zealand. Can anybody explain how that? is possible. Santa Claus comes down uh, an air conditioning vent. It makes absolutely no sense to me. Uh, nobody can explain this to me. How is it possible that Australians celebrate Christmas in the summer? Makes, uh, anyway. But for the rest of the world, and by the rest of the world, I mean New York City, uh, the days are getting shorter, especially the next seven days. Pay attention to your calendar. If you're getting depressed and sad, it's the season for that. This is why they invented Christmas and Hanukkah. Hanukkah isn't a real holiday. It's just like people get depressed, so they invented Hanukkah. Fake holiday. It really is, by the way. We are uh, gearing up for the winter solstice, unless you live in Australia. And I'm not sure people are, I I can't, it's a goof. They're lying to us. The rest of us, the winter solstice. I have a lot of listeners in Australia and New Zealand. I love them. They're great. Um, What was I talking about? The winter solstice for normal people, not Australians, is is right upon us. Uh, I think I'm probably getting this wrong, but I think the winter solstice is December 21st. Sure, I'm I'm sure this is the Easter egg. This is a little treat for the people who are coiled like snakes in the grass, waiting. No, you got, it's South Pacific, not the king and I. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's December 21st. And the week before the winter solstice is always the gloomiest because it's getting darker outside and darker and darker. But then something happens. On December 22nd, it starts getting lighter. And December 23rd is lighter than December 22nd starts getting light. That's the great thing about the first day of winter, because that means it's going to start getting lighter again. So this is the gloomiest I'm going to be. Well, no, actually until December 22nd. Allow yourself to be gloomy. You're supposed to be. Check in with me in about a week on December 22nd. But right now it's getting dark. It's always darkest before you see the light. That's my, my uncle Arnie was a proctologist and he taught, he taught me that he always used to say, it's always darkest before you see the light. So between now and the solstice, get into it, get into the gloom. It's time to catastrophize. Trump is not going to prison. He's going to be nominated and he, not America, is going to live happily ever after. Go there. Imagine the worst. But I have faith. I do. I have faith. Watch what happens on December 22nd. I believe that uh, Biden's poll numbers are plummeting right now. Trump is soaring right now. But this is the season of darkness. So, of course, Trump would look like he's winning He's the angel of darkness. Everything changes starting December 22nd. We begin to see the light. Unless, of course, you live in Australia, in which case Trump's going to win and it's the end of America. This is a pledge Please support this program by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. I accept all major credit cards. It is estimated... That it usually takes two months from the time a typical Congress authorizes an impeachment probe to the time Congress votes on impeachment. From the time they authorize the probe to the time they take a vote on impeachment, it usually lasts about two months. That means by February 15th, the impeachment probe would have been wrapped up and voted on. But there are several problems with that timetable for Republicans. Right now, Republicans have a five-vote margin. Kevin McCarthy is out the door this morning. George Santos, also gone. And Republican Bill Johnson from Ohio is resigning early, early next year. And none of these members will be replaced by the middle of February when the impeachment vote would normally take place. And with all with those three guys gone, it would all it would take is two Republicans not to vote for impeachment. And then the story's over. They have the hearings in January. They have more hearings in February. They make their case. They vote on impeachment. The House rejects it. And then the story's over in February. The House failed to impeach. It's over. That's it. And it's only February. There's nine more months to fill until the November election. Nine more months to distract from Donald Trump's four criminal trials. And even if the votes for impeachment split exactly down party lines and they vote to impeach, then it goes straight to the Senate. And then the story's over. There's absolutely no way for a conviction in a democratically controlled Senate I doubt Chuck Schumer would even dignify it and hold the trial. I doubt he would even have a trial. So that scenario of a vote by mid-February is unlikely because, as I just said, the Hunter Biden story, the Joe Biden story, the corruption, it ends immediately. No more beating up on Hunter. No more railing against this imaginary Biden crime family. The more likely scenario is republicans treat the biden impeachment the same way they treat immigration and abortion make it a permanent fixture keep it around as a cudgel to use against the democrats and joe biden if you vote to impeach too soon the story disappears but if you drag it on issuing contempt citations against the Biden crime family, accusing the Biden administration of stonewalling. This could go all the way into the general election, into November, because this isn't really about removing a sitting president. This is about weakening a sitting president so Donald Trump can win in November. Like I said on yesterday's show, Republicans have immigration, they have abortion, And the Biden crime family, those are the three stalking horses they need. They need to keep those three stalking horses alive until Election Day. Republicans approved an official impeachment probe without being able to explain what exactly they're probing. There is no evidence that Hunter Biden earned any money illegally. There is no evidence that he broke any laws by giving any money to Joe Biden. Republicans have turned the impeachment probe into the independent counsel's office looking into Bill Clinton. Most of you are too young to, to know about this. But during Clinton's time in office, the independent counsel began looking into a land deal called Whitewater. It was suspected that as governor of Arkansas, Bill and Hillary got themselves involved with a shady bank that loaned them money to purchase property in such a nefarious way that they could benefit from the government bailing out savings and loans when this savings and loan went bankrupt. There was uh, one independent counsel. He couldn't find anything. He left. And then Kenneth Starr took over the investigation. And he, too, to Kenneth Starr's credit, he said, I got nothing. But Starr, not to his credit, had to find something because he was part of the vast right-wing conspiracy to destroy the Clintons. Find something. So this is what happened. Ken Starr created a sting operation to create a crime to prosecute Bill Clinton for. They created a crime. They couldn't find anything on Bill Clinton, so they created a sting operation and they got him lying under oath. Now, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States and he was forced to testify in a civil lawsuit filed by Paula Jones, who claimed then governor Bill Clinton sexually harassed her. The Supreme Court, interestingly enough, ruled that sitting presidents can be sued in a civil court. So President Bill Clinton, President of the United States, was about to be deposed when Ken Starr, who's about to be deposed in the Paula Jones sexual harassment lawsuit. And Ken Starr discovered from Linda Tripp that Monica Lewinsky, a former intern inside Bill Clinton's Oval Office, had carried on a relationship with the president inside the Oval Office. Ah, said Ken Starr. He arranged, called up the lawyers in the Paula Jones case, because they all were part of the same vast right-wing conspiracy that they made. You know, Hillary Clinton went on the Today Show and said, there's a vast right-wing conspiracy out to get us. And the same people who were funding... The Paula Jones sexual harassment suit just happened to be the same people who knew Ken Starr. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh worked for Ken Starr back then. Uh, So Ken Starr calls up the attorneys for Paula Jones and says, hey, you know, you're deposing Bill Clinton. Ask him who Monica Lewinsky is and ask him if he ever had sexual relationships with Monica Lewinsky. And Ken Starr knew that Bill Clinton would perjure himself, which he did. Clinton under oath said he didn't have sex with Monica Lewinsky, and that was it. They caught they couldn't find a crime. They caught him by creating a crime sting operation. Ken Starr invented a crime. They caught Bill Clinton lying under oath. Uh they had to find something. There was no crime. Bill Clinton lied about oral sex. And in his mind, he didn't believe oral sex was sex. That was his definition. And I know a lot of road comics, who a lot of married road comic, comics turned to their <laughs> wives and said, see, honey, Bill Clinton says it's not sex. I didn't cheat on you. Uh, and... This is exactly what the Biden impeachment probe is turning out to be. Just an open-ended, nonstop investigation where Mike Johnson, the speaker, says, we'll just see where the evidence takes us. I've never heard of such a thing when it comes to an impeachment probe, where Congress, with all that's going on, the the Speaker of the House gets an official impeachment probe by saying, we'll just see where the evidence takes us. That's not how impeachment probes work, Mr. Constitutional Scholar. To refresh your memory, Mike Johnson, Donald Trump's 2021 impeachment probe was authorized after he committed the crime of instigating an insurrection. When the impeachment probe was authorized, they knew exactly what they were looking for. They weren't going to find out where the evidence took them. We all knew why there was an impeachment probe and why there was an impeachment. Trump's first impeachment, that first impeachment probe, was authorized by a full vote of the House in late 2019 after several whistleblowers stepped forward charging Trump with holding up the delivery of an arm shipment to Ukraine, an arm shipment that was authorized by Congress. He said, I'm not going to send this to you, Mr. Zelensky, until you help Rudy Giuliani find dirt on Hunter Biden. Once Congress knew the specifics of the crime, once they knew what they were looking for, then they authorize an impeachment probe. Even the Clinton impeachment probe began after Ken Starr established that Clinton perjured himself in the Paula Jones deposition. And then, of course, the cover-up. What the Republicans did this week is essentially establish an ongoing standing committee on impeachment with the powers to subpoena whoever they want and go wherever the evidence takes them. In other words, for the first time in American history, we have a permanent impeach, impeachment probe in search of a crime. We don't have a, a crime yet, but like Ken Starr, the independent Counsel will just keep holding hearings so enough voters will think there is a crime. Well, when would this impeachment probe end? It doesn't. At least not by February, when normally these impeachment probes would end. Now, and it's certainly not going to end by November. It's going to keep going until Trump wins or the Republicans lose the House. If Biden is reelected, Republicans keep the House, we will essentially have a permanent select impeachment committee conducting nonstop hearings, going wherever the evidence takes them. This is a pledge episode. Please support this program by going to DavidFeldmanShow.com. I accept all major credit cards. The Washington Post reports that Trump continues to accuse the migrants at the border of trying to come into America and poison our blood. As I pointed out earlier, poison our blood is a phrase straight from Hitler's Mein Kampf, where Hitler warned that non-Germans were destroying all that was good, noble, and creative About the German people. Trump, who faces four criminal trials next year, said he will be the law and order president, the anti crime president, and he promises to give more power to local police officers, as well as qualified immunity from prosecution when they rough up or kill someone in the line of duty. On Meet the Press, Senator Lindsey Graham was asked on Sunday about Trump pinching lines from Adolf Hitler word for word about immigrants poisoning the blood of our nation. Well, Lindsey Graham at first tried to focus on that imaginary crisis at the border, but three times he was asked about Trump using Hitler's language. And finally, Lindsey Graham said, quote, you know, we're talking about language I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. It's just language, right? So were the Nuremberg Codes, Lindsay, just language. Here's some interesting language. Confirmed bachelor, Lindsay Graham. It's just language. Paragraph 175 of the German criminal code, it predated Hitler. Paragraph 175, Lindsay was passed In 1875, and you might find this interesting, confirmed bachelor, Lindsey Graham, paragraph 175 outlawed homosexuality. Just language, just words. But Hitler used paragraph 175, Lindsey Graham. He saw the law that was on the books, and he rounded up the homosexuals. Not all the homosexuals. He couldn't. His party, just like the Republicans, was lousy with homosexuals. So he rounded up the homosexuals under paragraph 175, who he deemed a threat, an enemy of the state. And these homosexuals, Lindsey Graham, under paragraph 175, they were sent off to concentration camps along with all the other people poisoning Germany's blood. Yeah, the homosexuals were mental defects, according to Hitler, and they were poisoning the German people's blood, and they needed to go to the concentration camps. That's what Trump is talking about, Lindsay. Mental defects. Have you heard his speeches? He's calling the migrants mental defects. But they're just words, right? Confirmed bachelor, Lindsey Graham. Paragraph 175 just words, just words passed into law in 1875, sitting around waiting 50 some odd years for someone like Adolf Hitler to come around and make those words sing. Interesting, right? Confirmed bachelor Lindsey Graham, who's never, just never found the right woman. Here's another interesting tidbit, Lindsey Graham, about paragraph 175. When Antifa, Liberated the concentration camps during World War II, everyone was released. Just as soon as they were strong enough and had a place to go, everyone got to leave those concentration camps in Germany, Poland, around Eastern Europe. Antifa let everybody out. The Jews, the Gypsies, the Communists, the Catholics, they were all... Free to go, they they got to trade their prison garb for civvies. Everyone, except for the homosexuals, Lindsay. Paragraph 175, outlawing homosexuality, stayed on the books until 1994 in Germany. It's interesting, the rights we take for granted and assume once they've been given to us, those rights, well, we just assume... They can never, ever be taken away from us. Interesting. Homosexuality has been legal in Germany since 1994. When was Lawrence v. Texas? I think it was later. Was it later than 1994? When did we legalize same-sex marriage? 10 years ago? Uh, We take it for granted. We took abortion for granted. We assume we don't need constant vigilance. We have these rights. They're inalienable. Nobody's taking them away from us. So because of paragraph 175, there were German men placed in concentration camps during Hitler's reign. They were placed in concentration camps for being gay or being, that was the reason they were rounded up. And then after World War II, these men continued their sentences in German prisons. They were taken out of the concentration camps and moved into German prisons because paragraph 175 wasn't taken off the books until 1994. I believe the last homosexual arrested by the Nazis then sent to a concentration camp and then... After Antifa liberated the concentration camp, he was then transferred to a prison. He was finally released in the late 1960s. There was actually somebody who was serving a Hitler-era sentence for homosexuality as late as the 1960s. Just language, Lindsay. Just words. Just words. Just language, Lindsay Graham. Confirmed bachelor. Bachelor. This is a pledge of Please support this program by going to DavidFeldmanShow.com. I accept all major credit cards. And while it is illegal to give money to a justice who's sitting on the Supreme Court, it's not illegal to give money to Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife. And this is why Clarence Thomas... To just cash in his chips and go home. He married the wrong person. Yeah, Clarence Thomas's wife Ginny has been collecting salaries off Clarence's uh people courting him in the court. The Federalist Society and the donors to the Federalist Society are very sophisticated, and they know how to skirt the laws when they're not writing them. For example, According to reporting by the Washington Post, Leonard Leo's Judicial Education Project, he changed the name, but at one time he had something called the Judicial Education Project, a nonprofit 501c3 tax deductible nonprofit. Well, according to the Washington Post, Leonard Leo's nonprofit secretly gave $80,000 to Kellyanne Conway's polling company back in 2011 so Kellyanne could hire Ginny Thomas' Liberty Consulting, a political consulting company owned by Ginny Thomas, which, according to reporting that was done by CNBC, it pays her a base salary as well as benefits, but her disclosures are too opaque for CNBC to determine to examine where all the money comes from or where it goes. There are breadcrumbs that investigative journalists can follow. CNBC reports that Ginny Thomas's Liberty Consulting has worked for several organizations including one led by Frank Gaffney Jr., who the Anti-Defamation League says has a storied history of anti-Muslim hate speech. Ginny Thomas's company also consulted the Alabama judge Roy Moore's failed run for Senate in Alabama. Remember Judge Roy Moore? Let me refresh your memory. The Ten Commandments? And high school girls. That's why he lost the race for Senate. Not the Ten Commandments. Not violating. He was a judge who didn't care about the Establishment Clause. He was one of the Ten Commandments everywhere in Alabama. Uh, But he uh, signed a couple of high school (laughs) yearbooks. He signed a couple of high school yearbooks. Uh, and the people in Alabama thought, wait, if it's not your sister, um, you shouldn't be hitting on, um, anyway, that's why he lost. While the Supreme Court was deliberating Citizens United, Ginny Thomas's Liberty Consulting received a $550,000 anonymous donation from Dallas real estate billionaire Harlan Crow who has turned out to be a super friend to Ginny and Clarence Thomas. It was a $550,000 anonymous donation, but we have the Washington Post and ProPublica who dig into these things. We've learned that Harlan Crow, the Dallas real estate billionaire, gave Thomas Frederick Douglass's Bible, which was said to be worth, at the time, close to $20,000. And then he donated $150,000 to add a Clarence Thomas wing to the library Clarence used as a child. Interesting thing about Harlan Crowe, the Dallas real estate billionaire, he's a collector, a fine art, likes to support the arts. He likes beautiful things. According to the Washingtonian magazine, Harlan Crow has one of the world's most impressive collections of Nazi memorabilia, including two watercolors done by Adolf Hitler. But none of the pastels. Steve Martin gobbled all those up in the late 1970s. You cannot get the Hitler pastels, uh, I almost had a limited edition Hitler lithograph, but Howie Mandel, that prick, outbid me for it. Just out of spite. He knew I wanted that Hitler lithograph. Uh, Yeah, Harlan (laughs) Harlan Crow has two watercolors done by Adolf Hitler, and he's helping fund the Federalist Society and Ginny and Clarence Thomas. He's also got statues of other strong men. Uh, I think Stalin. I think he's got. Uh, yeah, that's Harlan Crow. And supposedly his Nazi memorabilia is like just jaw dropping. I, I didn't even know it was legal to have Nazi memorabilia. According to the Washington Post, Harlan Crow for the past 25 years has treated Ginny and Clarence Thomas to luxury trips around the world, all first-class, first-class travel, first-class accommodations to places like New Zealand, the Adirondacks, and Indonesia. This is hundreds of thousands of dollars in payments in kind to Ginny and Clarence Thomas. And when asked about why he didn't disclose any of these Gifts. Clarence Thomas said they're not gifts, they're gratuities. He said these are gratuities. I always think of a gratuity as a tip, but apparently Clarence Thomas and I have a different definition of the word gratuity. He said this is what friends do for one another. This is just what friends do. Mm-hmm. Crow paid Harlan Crow, he with the world class collection of Nazi memorabilia. Harlan Crow paid. The $6,000 a month tuition at a private boarding school for Clarence Thomas's nephew, who Clarence had become the legal guardian of. That's what friends do. Crow also spent $133,000 to buy several homes that was owned by Thomas and his relatives. One of those homes allowed Clarence's, Thomas's mother, Clarence Thomas's mother to live rent free because that's what friends do. Then there's Anthony Welters from United Health Group, health insurance mogul. He loaned Clarence Thomas $267,230 to purchase a luxury RV back in 1999. And then most, if not all, of that $267,230 loan was mysteriously forgiven anthony welters was asked about he can't find the paperwork said i can't i can't find the paperwork this is a health insurance guy who can't find the paperwork how ironic according to the washington post clarence thomas had no problem taking free trips free vacations free golf outings and free flights from billionaire h Wayne Bazinga no that's <laughs> hazinga different <laughs> bazinga hazinga he's a waste management guy i I think he owned uh, some video rental h Wayne Bazinga. h h Wayne uh, hazinga a, the H actually stands for hazinga by the way it's hazinga Wayne hazinga who uh, died in 2018 without a pillow on his head. He did not die the same way Antonin Scalia died. They found Antonin Scalia at a hunting lodge with a pillow on his face, dead. A gratuity, some friends treated him to a a, uh, hunting vacation. That's how Antonin Scalia died. The Washington Post reports that the Heritage Foundation paid Ginny Thomas close to a million dollars between 2001 and 2007. What did she do? None of your business. Common Cause discovered the income and said Clarence Thomas failed to report any of it on the annual financial disclosures required by all Supreme Court justices. It's just a million dollars from the Heritage Foundation, which handpicks Donald Trump's cabinet The Heritage Foundation, you might have heard of Project 2025. They've written this manifesto on how Donald Trump can hit the ground running on day one to dismantle the administrative state. That Heritage Foundation, they paid Ginny Thomas close to a million dollars between 2001 and 2007. To do what? None of our business. Ginny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's wife, has also received paychecks from the ultra-conservative Hillsdale College. You know Hillsdale College, the college, the far-right college that advertises? Not a good, not a good sign when, when, when colleges are, seem to spend more on advertising than they do on their students. She also received paychecks from Tucker Carlson's Daily Caller. Both organizations, Hillsdale College and The Daily Caller, refuse to say how much they paid Ginny Thomas and what exactly she did for them. The Washington Post reports that Ginny Thomas received $236,000 from the Center for Security Policy. They're an ultra-far-right think tank that, according to the Washington Post, has spread the lie that Muslims are infiltrating the United States and are a danger. The Post says that the Center for Security Policy, the Muslim-bashing Center for Security Policy, filed an amicus brief in favor of Donald Trump's Muslim ban, which went before the Supreme Court. They filed that amicus brief supporting Donald Trump's ban of Muslims entering the country. They filed that amicus brief... The same exact time Ginny Thomas was getting paid $236,000 by the same organization. What a coincidence. Boy, the stars really lined up, didn't they? This is a pledge episode. Please support this program by going to DavidFeldmanShow.com. I accept all major credit cards. The budget process starts at the beginning of every year. It begins with the president proposing his version of a budget. President Biden, at the beginning of the year, proposed a $6.9 trillion budget. Now, it's time for everybody to take a nap. Okay, this is going to get really boring. So you may want to stop listening because it's going to get really boring. In the budget, there is what is called discretionary spending, and mandatory spending I hear these terms thrown around like I'm supposed to know what they mean some of you know what it means and if you're like me you once knew what it meant you forgot what it meant you looked it up so you knew what it meant and then you forgot what it meant and then you looked it up again it's hard to remember this stuff because the people in charge of the budget process don't want us to participate. So they keep it confusing. Let me remind us how the budget works. Let me go full screen here. The budget, wow, is divided into three buckets. There's discretionary spending, mandatory spending, and then the interest on the bonds we sell to pay for the debt we accrue, by spending more than the Internal Revenue Service was able to collect. Three buckets, are you awake? Everybody awake? Anybody still here? Three buckets, there's discretionary, (laughs) mandatory, and then there's the interest payments on the treasury bills to pay for the budget deficit. Okay, discretionary spending, is what the fight over the budget is really about. Mandatory spending is mandatory. You can't fight about it. There's very little to argue. And the third bucket, the interest on the debt, that's got to be paid. Otherwise, our credit rating is destroyed and the government can't borrow any more money because nobody would buy our treasury bonds, which are still considered the safest investment in the world so this is what the 2024 budget is eight percent of the 2024 budget if we spend seven trillion dollars in 2024 eight percent of that goes towards paying the interest on the 33 trillion dollar debt that we have 26 percent of the 2024 budget would be discretionary spending and 66 percent would be mandatory spending Okay, let's talk about the first bucket. Wake up. Come on, wake up. The first bucket is discretionary spending. That is what we can spend with discretion. It's the spending you and I and our members of Congress and the president get to fight about. It's money spent at our own discretion. I'm helping you with the mnemonic now. Why is it called discretionary spending? Because we can raise and lower discretionary spending at our own discretion. Discretionary spending, however, also includes military spending, which, you know, we all know that's not really discretionary. They say it's discretionary, but it's not. Whatever we spent on the military last year, is automatically going to be spent again this year. And then you add another 100 billion or so. But they call it discretionary. But politically, we know there's no choice here. It's uh, we know both parties are never going to cut military spending, but they call it discretionary spending. And that's part of the discretionary uh, spending bucket. And inside that discretionary spending bucket, Okay, inside that discretionary spending bucket, we have 45% of that discretionary spending bucket is military spending. Uh, Yeah. Okay, that would be the National Defense Authorization Act, which Congress is supposed to pass before the holiday break. It's one of the 12 appropriations bills that make up the 2024 budget. It's defense spending, it's a no brainer. And it has to be passed before the holiday break, because if Congress can't pass defense spending before Christmas, they're not going to be able to pass anything. So that's 45 percent of the discretionary spending that's uh, military. And right there, the arrow points to discretionary spending. That's 55 uh, percent of discretionary spending is non-military. 55% of discretionary spending is non-military. And that right there is what all the fighting is about. What we spend on keeping the government running, paying the salaries of the millions of federal employees or some call it the administrative state, that's the big monster Republicans want to dismantle, non-military discretionary spending. 55% of discretionary spending. It's things like the EPA, the CDC, the NIH, the Department of Transportation, all the agencies that regulate, you know, the FDA, the Department of Agriculture, all the millions of federal employees who make sure our food, drugs, and roads are safe. The people who warn us to get the way, uh, get the way, uh, get away from a hurricane. Republicans Either want to get rid of that or defund it. The Justice Department, the FBI, and of course the Internal Revenue Service, that's all in that 55% discretionary bucket. That's the non military bucket of the discretionary funding. So let's go back. Are you awake? You still believe in a democracy, or should we just go to fascism and not have to worry about this shit? So, Of the 2024 budget, right, of let's say a $7 trillion budget, the argument is only over discretionary spending. See that? 26%. That's it. There's the mandatory spending. That's 66%. There's no argument there. And the interest is 8% of the budget. There's no argument there. The argument is over 26% of the budget, which is discretionary. And of the discretionary part of the budget, 45% is spent on the military and 55% is non-military. So nearly half of the 26% of the entire budget is military, 45%. And so all the fighting and the arguing right now is pretty much over the 50% of the 26% allocated for discretionary spending. So basically, we're arguing over about, let's say, 14% of the entire $7 trillion budget. The rest is spoken for. You know, the military is non-negotiable. So they're arguing right now about 14% of the entire budget because 66% of the entire budget is what is called mandatory spending. This is discretionary spending, Uh, but it's mandatory spending. Discretionary spending, mandatory spending. Now, the budget, are you awake? Everybody awake? Is anybody here? The budget process, the 12 appropriations bills that make up the budget, is for the most part thought out uh, in in the discretionary spending bucket. But discretionary spending, like I said, only makes up about 26% of the entire budget. So uh, where am I? The other bucket is the 8% for interest. And uh, that I'll try to explain. We have a $33 trillion debt. So when we run budget deficits, when we spend more money, Then the Internal Revenue Service collects in taxes, we're running a deficit, which is different from the debt. We have a budget deficit. So to pay for what we don't have, we issue bonds to investors who buy those bonds. So they give our government cash buying those bonds, and then those bonds are added to our $33 trillion debt. But to get people to buy our bonds or our debt, we have to make it attractive to them. So we pay them interest. And that interest on the entire $33 trillion debt comes to 8% of our annual budget. Think of your credit card, okay? Over the years, I racked up $33 trillion in credit card charges buying bridges, howitzers, and cures for COVID, 8% of, and I'm not paying off my $33 trillion credit card balance. So every year, 8% of everything I spend goes towards paying interest on my $33 trillion credit card debt. And then there's the discretionary spending. Is everybody still awake? Do you hate me? This is what's going on in Washington. This is what's going on. Uh, It's boring, but it's important. It's like it's life or death. It is. It's life or death. So there's discretionary spending. That's the there's discretionary spending. There's the interest on the debt. And then the last bucket is uh, mandatory spending. So let me get to mandatory spending. Uh, Okay, mandatory spending is spending that was ordered through previous legislation and must be paid each year. That's mandatory spending. That would be Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, SNAP. That would be the food stamps, benefits, unemployment insurance, the earned income tax credit and temporary assistance to needy families. That's all in the mandatory spending bucket. Mandatory spending is supposedly untouchable. It's considered the third rail. But Republicans are constantly trying to touch it. They want to cut SNAP benefits as well as temporary assistance to needy families. They will always fight cost of living adjustments on Social Security and are desperately trying to cut spending on Medicare except when it comes to giving Medicare the power to negotiate drug prices. Republicans want to cut spending on Medicare, but they never, ever want to cut what Medicare overpays Big Pharma for the big ticket drugs, because Big Pharma is one of the Republican Party's biggest constituents. So that's mandatory spending, and that comprises 66% of our budget. That's the biggest chunk of spending, and they're really not arguing about that. And that's our budget. And right now, Congress can't decide what the top line will be on discretionary spending. Now, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, yeah, I'm going there. I'm really sorry. I I, I am because this was like the fiscal responsibility. Remember, the debt ceiling had to be raised in June and we had to negotiate and Biden and McCarthy and the government was going to shut down and everybody was going to get laid off and we were going to default on the the bonds. Remember that? Uh, I'm sorry, but we passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act back in June to lift the debt ceiling until January of 2025. And the Fiscal Responsibility Act from June, uh, Republicans and Democrats agreed that congressional spending could blow past the $33 trillion debt we already owe, past the debt ceiling. But Republicans and Democrats agreed that discretionary spending for the 2024 budget would be roughly $868 billion for defense and $703 billion for non-defense spending in that bucket of discretionary spending, right? Uh, And so, according to the Fiscal Responsibility Act passed in June, discretionary spending... $868 $868 billion for defense, $703 billion for non-defense. Depending on whether you're using a Democratic calculator or a Republican calculator, discretionary spending, the top line for discretionary spending, would be $1.6 trillion total if you're using a Republican calculator, if you're using a Democratic calculator, $1.7 trillion, $1.8 trillion. And that would be the top line for discretionary spending. What is the most we can spend this year is called the top line. And the 2024 budget was all ironed out in June with the Fiscal Responsibility Act, right? Which means the 2024 budget was supposed to be passed and initiated on October 1st of this year. Couldn't do it, even though we had a Fiscal Responsibility Act passed. Couldn't do it. So they keep passing these continuing resolutions while they still try to pass these spending bills. And yet they still can't agree on what the top line is. So no bills will be going into a conference committee before the Christmas holidays because they still can't agree on how much they're willing to spend. Now, if you're like me, if you're still awake, if you haven't unsubscribed to this channel, you hate this feculence. Uh, you're creative. You want to make things. You don't want to think about the costs. Your eyes are glazing over. My eyes are glazing over. Uh, you know, it's like I, I'm, I'm directing a movie. I, I, I want to worry about the actors, the set design, the script, all the fun stuff. That allows me to express my inner demons. Most people who go to Washington to be, they they, want to do the culture issues. They, you know, the big, they don't want to do the nuts and bolts of democracy, which is spending. What you spend defines who you are. What you spend money on defines your values. So but you don't want to think about that because you're creative. You let the bean counters fight me, but keep them out of my way. Here's the thing. It's the evil bean counters. And most of them are evil who decide how much of our money goes to schools and how much goes towards bombs we don't need. It's a matter of life and death. The bean counters get to decide who lives and who dies. And the bean counters want you and me, you want, they want our eyes to glaze over. They want us to be confused. So they invent terms like discretionary and non-discretionary spending, mandatory spending. They have their own exclusionary language to lock us out, to make us feel stupid, to prevent us from saying, where's my money, Henry? I want my money, Henry. Where's my money? Oh, Danny boy. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a pledge episode. I'll be back later in the week with brand new episodes. Go to DavidFeldmanShow.com to donate. I accept all major credit cards.